God, we pray that you would break down the walls and that we would hear you, that we would commune with you, that we would know you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Hey, I'm titling this message, How to Conquer the Promised Land, because I think we each have promised land that we would like to conquer. And we come to church hoping to get some info on how we might do that. You have a promised land that you'd like to conquer. But not only that, I think you have a promised land that you're supposed to conquer. And I think we as a church have promised land that we're supposed to conquer, just like the Israelites had promised land that they were supposed to conquer. But how to conquer it is a little more complicated, or at least confusing. Some people think that the Bible is a, is a how-to book. And in the Old Testament, there does seem to be an awful lot of how-to, and we usually call it the law. Unfortunately, Israel can't seem to, to do the law. They seem to constantly break the law, and they keep losing the, the promised land. In the New Testament, in the ESV, the phrase how-to, because I looked it up, appears 19 times in, in the New Testament. Ten times, just ten times in the Gospels. Not one of those ten times refers to anything having to do with how you acquire the, the promised land or the kingdom. But half of those ten times refer to religious people trying to figure out how to crucify the king of the kingdom. Jesus. Not many how-tos. And so we religious types write how-to books in order to fill in the blanks. I literally have, have hundreds. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And I brought just a few so that you would trust me that, that I'm not lying because I know that's a problem with preachers. But I brought them just to show you. This is, these are all like how to be a man and how to resist the temptations of being a man. And then there's some how to be married and how to have ch We figured that one out ourselves. But anyway, how to be married, uh, how to have children, uh, how to be good parents. Uh, this is how to cast out demons, how to be filled with the Spirit, how to heal people, and uh, how to build the church. I think you could title all of these books, How to Conquer the Promised Land. Well, in Joshua 6, the children of Israel actually do conquer the promised land. Or at least a part of the promised land temporarily. And the Bible tells us how it happened, how the walls of Jericho came tum tum tumbling down. In the fall, we plan to preach through the Revelation. Preached through it years ago, and I'm really excited to preach through, through it again. But the Revelation is like Joshua chapter 6 on steroids. It's pretty cool. It's all about how seven little churches, and really all churches, conquer, how to conquer. Well, the Revelation is one reason that I wanted to preach on Joshua 6 today, and this is the other. Three times in the last four years when we were asking this question, how, how to, 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 to conquer, my wife has uh, it, it, this happened on a board retreat? I think it happened on another retreat it, where she's come in and she said, Peter, God wants us to read Joshua chapter 4. 
In Joshua chapter 4, Israel crosses the Jordan from the wilderness into the promised land and sets up a monument of 12 stones called an Ebenezer. That's why, if you notice, we have 12 stones around the base of the cross to remind us that uh, the Lord has brought us this far and we're not to go back. In Joshua 5, they all get circumcised at a place called the Hill of Foreskins. I would totally love to have a photo of that, wouldn't you? But anyway, they all get circumcised, then they all celebrate the Passover, and then the conquest of the promised land begins. I don't expect you to fully understand this or the revelation uh, for that matter. In fact, it might be better if you didn't think of this so much as a teaching, but something more like a devotional, okay? So are you ready to be devoted Joshua 5, verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Now, a drawn sword in that day was like a raised assault rifle. You paid attention, okay? And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries, our enemies? And he said, no. God seems to answer questions that way sometimes, doesn't he? Are you are this or that? No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come, or now I am come. Joshua asks, are you for us or for our adversaries? Which makes perfect sense if you've been commanded to conquer the, the, the promised land. And I'm sure Joshua hopes that this guy's for Israel because he'd like to get some info on how he could possibly do that. Are you for us or for our adversaries? And the commander answers by not answering. He says, no. No. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. As if to say the Lord's kingdom is not on this side or that side. The Lord's kingdom is entirely undivided. It has no sides. Not even any insides or outsides. As if everything that is anything worships the Lord. As if the commander could hear what John hears in Revelation chapter 5 when he hears every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them saying to him who sits on the throne and unto the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. As if he could see what God sees on the seventh day of creation. Everything good. Very good. It is finished. So you see, it's, a, it's an undivided kingdom with no sides. And yet this commander has a drawn sword. He's obviously opposed to something. He's about to attack something. What do you suppose it is? Well, the commander of the Lord's army is this man. And yet he, also, he must also be the Lord. For Joshua falls down and worships him, and the commander does not stop him. This is like the angel of Yahweh that we've been talking about, the Lord of hosts, the God-man. This has got to be Jesus. Next verse. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. 
Joshua has 40,000 men ready for war. He wants direction on how to conquer the promised land, and this is step one. Take off your shoes. <laughs> You're on holy ground. Here and now with Jesus. Now I am come, he says. Now is the point, philosophers, theologians, physicists say this, now is the point that eternity touches time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time, says scripture. Now, and now in case you are thinking that this story isn't about you, it is really interesting to note that Jesus is simply, the name Jesus is simply the anglicized form of the Hebrew name Joshua. So this is the first Joshua talking to the last Joshua, the eschatos Joshua, the ultimate Joshua. This is like the old man talking to the new man. The first Adam talking to the last Adam, the eschatos Adam, who is Christ. Remember, remember what Paul wrote? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's no longer I who live, but the commander of the Lord's army who lives in me, in me. How does he get into me? Because I have like walls around my heart. Well, Joshua takes off his shoes and he worships. And now chapter 6, the Lord tells him what to do. Verse 1, now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. Israel means wrestles with God. So Jericho is shut up inside and out because they do not want to be people that wrestle with God. That's freaky. They're safe. They've shut down their city. They're safe. They're safe as hell. You know, a city is a communion protected by a, a barrier, in this case a wall. But if nothing gets in and nothing goes out, the city's dead, even if it thinks it's alive. Your body is a communion protected by a barrier. But if it's shut up so that nothing gets in and nothing gets out, you're dead. Scripture claims that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. Alienated, cut off from the life of God, Ephesians 4. The life. 1 John 5, Jesus is eternal life. Eternal life, which is the death of death, and he is the commander of the Lord's army. And now he tells Joshua what to do. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with his king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war are going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Hopefully that clears things up for you. Because <laughs> that's how you 
conquer the promised land. Next verse. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And in the next ten verses, they do it. They just do it. I mean, they must be pretty devoted to do it. 40,000 men prepared for war. This would not be their judgment. Hey, guys, I got an idea. Let's get horns and we'll walk around and blow them and stuff. This would not be their judgment. This is the judgment of the Lord's army, the Lord of hosts. So they surrender their judgment to the judgment of God, and they do it. They're devoted. But now remember, this devotion happens after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And 40 years of wandering in the desert, during which time all of Israel died except for Joshua and Caleb. So if you ever think to yourself, I'm having a bad day, and I haven't seen one freaking miracle, this whole Christianity thing doesn't work. You might want to rethink that. Verse 15. On the seventh day, they rose early at the dawn of the day, marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day, only on that day, that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now, they could not understand how this worked. And yet God had given them some amazing pictures to tell them what it was or who it was that was working. The conquest happened on the seventh day, the seventh time around the city, at the blast of the seven trumpets by the seven priests before the ark when they all shouted because the Lord had given them the city. It happened on the seventh day. There's a problem with that. <laughs> That's the Sabbath day. When Israel was commanded to rest, for in six days God made the heavens and, on, and the earth, and on the seventh day he, he, he rested, for it is finished. Rest. They are commanded to do no labor on the seventh day under penalty of death. That means the commander of the Lord's army has just devoted them to destruction. Or maybe that somehow all their labor will in some other way be rest. Or both. Maybe it means both. Well, anyway, it happened when the seven priests blew the seven ram's horns, the, the shofar. We talked about that a few weeks ago. In Leviticus 25, the priests are commanded... Uh, to blow the shofar on the day of atonement, which begins the year of Jubilee, which followed seven times seven years, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, a Pentecost of, of years. At Jubilee, you might remember that property was returned, prisoners were uh, set free, all debts were forgiven. It was like they shared everything in common. Jubilee began on the day of atonement when the high priest went behind the veil and sprinkled the blood of sacrifice on the mercy seat on top of the ark. The sacrifice was a gift. And the gift was a confession. 
before the throne of God on the top of the ark. The ark of the covenant was also called the ark of the testimony. It was literally the law on stone tablets placed in a box or a, or a coffin it's sometimes called, covered with mercy. Literally a mercy seat, an atonement seat, which was the throne of God. The pillar of fire would come to rest on the mercy seat on top of the testimony between two cherubim, like those cherubim that guarded the way to the tree of life. You just need to have that picture. And all Israel would contemplate that testimony, the ark of the testimony. From the fire on top of the ark, the Lord would speak to Moses. And before the ark, all of Israel would commune with God, literally feasting on the sacrifices and offerings. That's, that's communion. So, so get this. They conquered on the Sabbath with rest before the ark, uh, the place of confession, contemplation, communion, and then they all worshiped. They shouted, for the Lord had given them the city. And yet, <laughs> they're still standing outside the walls of the city. Joshua says, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Yeah, because we're still standing outside the walls of the city. Scripture says, all things are yours. And Peter Hyatt says, well, you know, my bank seems to disagree with that. And then Jesus says, so Peter, who are you going to believe, me or the bank? Shout anyway. Shout anyway, for that's how you conquer the promised land. That's, that's worship. Israel shouts, and their worship comes into harmony with the eternal worship surrounding the throne. You see, the covenant is eternal. The testimony is eternal. The ark was kept behind a curtain that divided this age, humanity's age and ages, from God's age. In the Revelation, a lamb stands on the mercy seat as if it had been slain, and, and it has been slain, we find out, from the foundation of the world. And everything is good for every creature worships the lamb on, on the throne. That's the seventh day, the seventh day where everything is good and it's happening now. Israel shouts and their worship comes into harmony with the eternal worship surrounding the throne. Israel shouts and the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. That's pretty crazy. That's weird. But now things get really weird and downright terrifying. For at the seventh trumpet, there's an apocalypse, verse 16. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the seven trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Well, just think about, about, about this first. Just stay on the surface of that. J Joshua says, the Lord has given you the city. Well, thanks. <laughs> wow, what a gift. Now burn it with fire and devote it to the Lord. That's weird. God gives you your life, and then Jesus says something like this. If you save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for, for my sake and the testimony, 
you'll find it. That's weird. All things are yours, writes St. Paul, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's, which means he is Lord, and you must constantly surrender all things to him. Weird, and, and when you chew on it, when you chew on this verse a bit more, terrifying, like genocide is terrifying, except that the Lord God is commanding it, which makes it only worse. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Haram. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are within her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, the harem, lest when you have devoted the, the haram, when you have devoted them, you take away uh, any of the harem, the devoted things, and make the camp of Israel a harem, devoted for destruction, and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted Haram, all the city, to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Now this is really important. The phrase is devoted to the Lord for destruction, thing devoted to destruction, devoted thing, and thing for destruction are all one word. That we American English people are obviously having a really hard time trying to figure out how, how to translate. The word is haram. Haram is a, is, or haram is a verb meaning something like to devote. Harem is a noun meaning something like the devoted thing. And harem cannot simply mean thing devoted to destruction. For God says all the city and everything in it is harem. And then he gives them directions instructing them uh, not to destroy some of the harem. Namely, a harlot named Rahab and her family. And all the silver, gold, bronze, and iron, which if you think about it, those things are pretty hard to destroy with fire because they've already passed through the fire. And they're pretty hard to destroy with a sword because all swords are uh, made of those very things. The silver, gold, bronze, and iron are harem, but they are to go into the treasury of the Lord. Pop quiz. What do you put in a treasury? Yeah, treasure! Did you say treasure? That's a, I thought you said that, and you're on the board, so you should know this. You put treasure in a, in, a, in a treasury, and treasury isn't something you despise. You treasure treasure. In the interlinear, harem is translated consecrated possession. The New American Commentary defines it as the paramount of offerings to the Lord. Because of bad theology, we tend to think that God hates everything that's sacrificed. But that's the very point. The sacrifices are offerings. They're holy to the Lord, and harem is most holy. Leviticus 27, 28, God says to Moses, no devoted thing, harem, that a man devotes, haram, to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. In other words, you can't undevote a devoted thing. 
Because Yahweh wants it. <laughs> it is most holy to him. Actually, the Arabic word harem comes from the very same root as the Hebrew word harem. And I think maybe they mean the same thing. You do not mess with the king's harem. You don't mess with the king's bride. She is his most sacred treasure. Rahab is devoted to Yahweh. Right? She's in the city. All things in the city. Rahab is devoted to Yahweh and ends up married to an Israelite named Salmon. Rahab and Salmon commune in a covenant with no walls and probably no clothes. The two become one flesh and give birth to a life. Actually, they give birth to the life in the form of a seed that gets passed down through the generations until it's born as a baby, wrapped in swathing clothes, and placed in a manger. His name is Joshua, or as we pronounce it, Jesus. And he is the commander of the Lord's army. Well, then, of course, he's not for one side or another side. On one side of the wall is his grandfather, Salmon, the Israelite. And on the other side of the wall is his grandmother, Rahab, the Canaanite whore. Maybe he does not hate the devoted things. He hates the walls that they build, which keeps them from communion with God and with each other. Check this out. His life is literally their communion. Leviticus 27, 28. God continues explaining to Moses. Every devoted thing, harem, is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted, harem, who is to be devoted, haram, from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. So once you've been devoted you will be devoted. That looks like the treasury for silver, gold, bronze, and iron. It looks like marriage and a honeymoon for Rahab, the harlot bride. And it looks like human sacrifice for all humanity. And it is human sacrifice. And humanity is the Lord's bride. And humanity is the Lord's treasure. Humanity is Christ's body, an undivided kingdom wherein e each member sacrifices for every other member, circulating blood in a communion called life, eternal life. Eternal life because a devoted thing cannot be undevoted. And you say, well, okay, well, that's... That's kind, of, that's kind of cool, Peter, but um, it's still human sacrifice. Yeah, it is. 72 years ago, we dropped two bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing at least 129,000 people, most in a way far more painful than an Israelite spear thrust through the chest. And, 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 and now you may say, but wait a minute, that, that's different. Those, th those were bad people. Really? And do you think that they were worse than the Canaanites in Jericho, worshiping Baal? 
You may say, well, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but, but that's different. Yes, it is. We sacrifice the Japanese to no one but ourselves. But God made it very clear. Israel, you will be delivering the residents of Jericho to me. They are not yours to rape or torture or enslave. They are my harem. Now, of course, they must encounter the consuming fire that is God, and they must be cut still by the sword that is his judgment, but then they will no longer be a city shut up, will they? Alone, inside and out. In the New Testament, the commander of the Lord's army, he tells us to turn the other cheek. That's not a command we take very well, but he tells us to do that, to turn the other cheek. And he gives us a new weapon that cuts the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart with the power to set the captives free from the prison of, of self and give them life even before this old body dies. Whatever the case, Jericho is harem, translated devoted to destruction. But in the next chapter, it turns out that Israel is also harem. For someone has taken one of the devoted things and hidden it in his tent. Later, through Isaiah the prophet, God says that Jacob Israel is harem. And then through Jeremiah, he pronounces that Judah and Jerusalem is harem. Actually, in Isaiah 34.1, we read the following. L listen closely. E everyone's harem. Isaiah writes, or God says through Isaiah, Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention. Now, this is a picture of something else in, in Joshua 7. Draw near, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts, he has devoted them to destruction, haram, has given them over for slaughter. So you get the picture? Everyone has been devoted by God, and keep in mind that nothing devoted can be undevoted. Yeah! Zephaniah 3.8, in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Now if you're thinking, dang, Peter, this is really fascinating, but you're not helping me here. <laughs> I don't feel any better. We'll listen to the next verse. All the earth shall be consumed, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. What's God describing? He's grabbing a day when everything is good. For everyone has entered his rest and are joined together in this ecstatic communion of praise. He's describing the promised land. And check this out. Everyone gets there through devotion. And now you may say, well, cool, Peter. That's, that's pretty, that's really neat. But I'm still terrified. You see, I don't want to be devoted. We'll listen to the gospel, because this is it. You will want to be devoted. You will 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. You will present yourself as a living sacrifice, not because you have to, but because you want to with every fiber of your being. For you see, it's not only how we enter the promised land, it is the promised land. In the next chapter, Joshua is sure that they now know how to conquer the promised land. So there's a little city called Ai, A-I. It seems to be small. Joshua gets some guys and he says, go conquer Ai. And they can't conquer it. God reveals that someone has taken some harem. And now they won't be able to conquer until Israel surrenders the harem. That is until they devote the devoted thing, until they haram the harem. There's this incredible scene, breathtaking really, in Joshua chapter 7, wherein Joshua calls all the people out to this valley and he judges Israel, narrowing her down by families. He takes Judah, and then from Judah another clan, and then from Judah another clan, until it's narrowed down to a guy named Achan. And Achan is Achan, because he's got a devoted thing in his tent. And so he steps forward and he says, I have taken the devoted thing. I have the harem in my tent. And so they stone Achan, burn him with fire. They devote the devoted thing in the valley of Achor. That's what it's called, the valley of Achor. And then they conquer Ai. Such a weird story on so many levels, but at least this level, that, that according to Leviticus, all of Israel is still harem. For you cannot undevote a devoted thing. They still must be devoted. But we don't hear of the valley of Achor until we finally read about it in Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesies that it's going to become a, guide, a garden. And then through the prophet Hosea, God, the Lord, says this. Behold, I will allure her. He's speaking of Israel, his harlot bride. Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. I think that means that one day you will find yourself, or perhaps have found yourself already, in the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble. And Joshua will say, someone has the harem and is therefore harem. And you'll realize that everything in your tent, everything you possess, including your life, is harem and now you are harem. And just as about you're about to step forward and confess saying, I have the harem, someone else calls out. I have the harem. And you look, and it's the commander of the Lord's army. They take him and flog him and nail him to a tree outside the city. And you know, cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. He cries, Father, forgive, and he says your name. The sky grows black. The earth shakes. And then you hear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. And then he does something that up until this moment, no Adam, no man had ever done. He lifts his head, and with a great cry, he devotes himself utterly to the Lord, saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. Whew. 
In the Valley of Achor, you see that the Lord has devoted himself for you, in you, with you, and therefore to you. And suddenly you long to devote yourself to him with every fiber of your being. I mean, you freely will to devote yourself with every fiber of your being. The walls that surround the citadel that is your heart come crashing down. You drop to your knees exclaiming, surely this man was the son of God. Now there is no more separation. He is not on one side of the wall and you on the other side of the wall. He is the commander of the Lord's army and you are his treasure. You are his bride. You are his promised land and he is your promised land and you will give birth to more promised land. You are his body, fully devoted to the will of God, the commander. And what you thought was a horror turns into the greatest communion of delight. It's called love. And love is life. Life is an undivided kingdom wherein every member sacrifices for every other member in relentless joy. It's the promised land. That must happen. The kingdom will come. That must happen, is happening, and will happening. And so now I think this is what I'm trying to say. Everyone must be devoted. But you can be devoted, or you can be devoted. You can be devoted from the outside like a city that will not surrender, or devoted from the inside like the Roman centurion who dropped to his knees confessing, surely this man was the son of God. You can be devoted like frightened Canaanites in Jericho, or you can be devoted like waiting disciples in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. You can devote yourself in the hope of being devoted. Listen to Acts chapter 1, verse 13. And when they had entered Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Ptolemy, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves. Remember, the Lord had told them to wait. They were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They were devoting themselves and the devoting was not so much a how-to as much as a how-not-to. I mean, they were not exerting their will. They were surrendering their will. They were waiting and praying. Then when the day of Pentecost arrives, there is a sound like a mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire, they descend. They come to rest on each of the disciples like the fire would rest on the mercy seat on top of, of the ark, the very throne of God, the ark of the testimony. And then they begin to testify to the glory of God, the grace of God in all the languages of the people that, that, that have gathered now outside to hear what they have to say. Peter preaches, walls come down, and 3,000 souls are added to the body that day, Acts 2, 
and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers. With the faith that they had and already devoted, they devoted themselves some more, even more devoting. They kept devoting themselves. Signs and wonders manifested through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, not because they had to. They just really wanted to. They worshiped together, and together with glad and generous hearts, uh, they, 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 they ate and they drank and they, they sounds like a, a party. It was the promised land. And it began to grow. The Revelation describes it as the new Jerusalem coming down. It's not a city that we build. It's a city that God builds with us like living stones. It's not a city that enslaves people. It's a city that is people, whose gates are never shut. It's the promised land. It's the kingdom of God. So how do you conquer the kingdom of God? You must be conquered by the king, who is God. How do we conquer the promised land? We devote ourselves, for we have been devoted. And how do we do that? Well, I think that's what Jesus was describing to Joshua on the plains of Jericho. It's hard to describe because it's not so much something that we do, but something we cease to do that is, in fact, done to us. It's rest. And so devoting yourself is striving to enter his rest, like the author of Hebrews says. And so I hope that you take time to rest unto the, unto the Lord. With our work, you know, with all of our striving, I think we build walls that become prisons. The walls come down on the Sabbath day. It's rest, and rest is a form of confession. We confess our sins, and then we see that we must confess ourselves. Why? Because it's our ego that constantly builds walls, dividing and competing and separating. It's our ego that takes knowledge from God, knowledge of the good, and constantly uses it to judge. Do you know what we call that usually? What? Did you? Discipleship? Yeah, sometimes we call it discipleship. You know what I call it, I think, I, when, I, when I really analyze it? Most of the time, I think I call it thinking. <laughs> it's the way I think. Devotion is surrendering your thinking. In other words, devotion is surrendering your judgment to God's judgment, and God's judgment is standing on the mercy seat on top of the ark. God's judgment is grace. It's rest, confession, contemplation. Like I've been, I, I've been, lately I've been learning to stop my incessant inner babble Silent my, silence my soul and just sit in God's presence. And there I see that I am not the me that I have created. And that in fact, that me is the prison in which I am trapped. And in those moments, just exposed to the light, the walls start to come down, and I begin to commune. And communion with God is not torture. It's ecstasy. I even experienced it once. I thought it was going to kill me, but I was happy to die. 
ecstasy, rest, confession, contemplation, communion, and worship. If I, if I want to lose the me in which I'm imprisoned, the very best way to do it is focus on the one who sits on the throne of God. It's to worship. And, and I don't just mean singing, though it's often singing. I mean devoting myself to prayer, the apostles' teaching, finding Jesus in my neighbor while breaking bread with a glad and generous heart. It's all that stuff that's described in Acts chapter 2. And what we try to do every day every seventh day right here when we meet. So that's devotion. Get devoted. It's how we conquer the promised land. So people will often say to me, Peter, what does the church need? What do you, what do you need from me? Well, it's really all the same answer. <laughs> Devote yourself to the lamb standing on top of the throne. We, we must all be devoted. We, we must all be destroyed. I mean our flesh, our psyche, the prison of self must be destroyed. But listen closely, we are not devoted to destruction. We are devoted to, to Jesus, who is the death of death who is the life, who is the commander of the Lord's army, who is your husband. When we surrender to him, fruit happens. We each discover our gifts, like body parts discover their function when surrendered to the head, the commander. Recently, I was just pretty discouraged about my ability, about, about uh, the fact that I didn't know how to conquer the promised land. And I, I do this all the time, but I asked my wife to pray because God talks to her sometimes in, in visions and words. I said, honey, you got to pray for me. Would you just pray for me? A little bit later, she came into my office and said, Peter, I, I just had a vision. What I saw was a raging fire. I saw a raging fire, and it was the sanctuary, and we were all sitting around that fire. And then she said, these like embers went up from the fire, and then the wind would catch the embers and blow them around the world. And then she said, but Peter, this is the temptation. The temptation is to grab a torch, go stick it in the fire. The temptation for you, Peter, is to, to then go start lighting things on fire, making it happen. But all that happens is stuff just burns up and doesn't do the work of the embers. And so I said, okay, cool. Thanks, honey. Then about an hour later, I called Deb Sinnott just to see how she was doing. And she wanted to know how I was doing. I didn't know what to say. So I told her that vision. And she said, oh, Peter, I was just praying with Stephen Hahn on the phone. And as we were praying, I had a vision. It was a vision of us, the sanctuary. And we were walking with, like, refugees, all these refugees, countless refugees with all these needs, I guess. But, but as we're walking, uh, one of us would maybe see someone that was weeping and then just go over to that person and weep with the one who was weeping. And then one of us would maybe see someone that was dancing and we'd just go over and dance with the one that was dancing. She said, it was so so cool, but there was something that just didn't make sense. As I watched this, I, I looked and I realized that each one of us had like these black specks in our hands, like little black rocks. And then she said, now I understand. They are the embers. 
Jesus is our vision. And worship is our strategy. Devotion is our strategy. So how do we conquer the promised land? commander of the Lord's army took bread and he broke it saying this is my body given to you take and eat and he took the cup saying this cup is the covenant eternal covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins drink of it all of you and then outside the city nailed to a tree he devoted his life. Just outside the walls of Jerusalem. And you are Jerusalem. And so now, may you devote yourself to the Lord because you want to, with every fiber of your being. Dark cups are wine. Light cups are juice. They are both the lifeblood of the commander of the Lord's army. So you know what Achan had in his tent? It was like, I think, a little gold, a, little, a bar of gold, a little silver, and then this coat or something from Shinar. Um, and that was, can you hear me? Yeah, that, that was bad because those things were most holy to the Lord. They belonged to the Lord, and so Achan was devoted because he had a little gold in his tent. God can think gold into existence. Do you know what you have in your tent? <laughs> the life of the commander of the Lord's army. Do you think that's most holy to the Lord? And is this good news or bad news? What's been devoted can't be undevoted. Yeah, what just happened? <laughs> well, I think it's good news. <laughs> In other words, God is going to finish what he started. But to make sure it's good news, let's just do this right now. Let's just devote the city to the Lord. All right, pray with me. Lord God, we're tired of fighting against you. We're tired of doing life under our own power. Lord God, we're tired of resisting your love. And we don't put it in those terms, but I think that's what it is. Because, because you are constantly trying to break down the boundaries of our own selfishness. So in the name of Jesus, Lord God, we surrender the city. My life is your life. My city is your city. My things are your things. And Lord God, may my will be your will because I'm beginning to see that your will is good. You are love. And in Jesus' name, we surrender. Amen.
And now, do what you think God wants you to do. Maybe it's to weep with someone that weeps. Maybe it's to dance with someone that's dancing. Maybe someone is sick and you feel like you want to pray that they would be healed. We'll do it. You can do it. I don't know what will happen. I don't know if we'll be wandering in the wilderness 40 years or maybe 400 years in bondage or maybe a revival will break out. But that's not really our business, is it? Because we're surrendered to the commander. That's good news. You can rest. You are free. In Jesus' name, amen.